Hey folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 609 of the Survival Podcast. It is Tuesday, February 22nd, 2011, and I am back from the bug out location. I'm going to have to stop calling it the bug out location. I'm going to have to start calling it the Spirico Homestead because I'd say we're right about a month out from being there permanently now. Uh, there's just a little bit of stuff left to be done, a bunch of stuff left to be moved. But I went up there and took care of getting some carpeting done. We just decided it was smarter to do that before we moved all our stuff in there. And uh, finished up the wood flooring that I've been working on and uh, hung out with a buddy who's going through a kind of life-changing situation. Uh, because of that last part, I didn't get a lot of things I was planning on done up there. I want, I took the camera gear with me. I had a bunch of stuff I was going to review. Uh, I was actually planning to go completely alone this time, but uh, ended up playing life counselor for most of the trip. But, hey, that's what friends do, right? Um, but I, it is very cool that pretty soon I'll be saying, Hi, this is Jack Spierko coming to you live from somewhere in the Washita Mountains near Hot Spring, Arkansas. Uh, won't be doing that for at least a month. Got some big stuff coming up. Want to start out today with instead of just the housekeeping, a few announcements. Um, Thursday, I will be interviewing Paul Wheaton again, and I'll be talking about Wafati Housing. I'm going to air that interview on Friday. So this week we'll do the, Friday, the typical Friday call-in show on Thursday. Um, so Paul's coming back to talk about Wafati. He's agreed to come back on about six shows. I just got an email from him right before starting. Uh, if you haven't heard the first Paul Wheaton show, you're going to want to listen to it. Maybe the most popular guest we've ever had on the show. And when you listen to him, you'll know with good reason why. Uh, but yeah, he's coming back to talk about... We'll call it earth berm housing versus underground housing and, and structures like that uh, that are highly energy efficient, highly concealable, and very inexpensive to build. Something you could either build as a very small kind of getaway shelter or a full living home. Uh, so he'll be back on soon. A uh, big interview coming up on the 1st of March. That's a Tuesday. I'll be airing it on the 2nd, which is a Wednesday. Gary Vaynerchuk, who is a really world-famous guy, been on all the major networks, Got famous doing a podcast about all things wine and uh, has been really known for kind of being a mogul in the social media marketplace and how to build a business online. I'm going to bring him on to talk about how, you know, having your own business, building your own business, having your own thing. And even if you're not building a business, but just being an employee, how to use modern technology to stay marketable. Because, folks, your income is part of your survivability. I say it all the time. We need to prepare for both Failure and success is in the system. And if we only prepare for one, we're just as foolish as those who only prepare for the other. Gary's going to talk about being prepared for, you know, even hard times. Because the people with their own businesses have gone through this recession better than those who were just employees. So Gary will be on next week. Those are two great interviews coming up. Also, I don't want to go into the debauchery of the the, uh, the Dervais family today. If you want to know more about what I'm talking about when I say they've kind of hosed over the entire urban homesteading community, you can listen to uh, the first part of uh, Thursday's show from last week. Uh, but you know they, what they've basically done is trademark the term urban homestead, urban homesteading, and several others, and they're sending these notices to bloggers. They're not cease and desist, and they're not threatening to sue. What they're t saying is, we own the term, and either you can't use it, or you must use it the way we tell you. 
all caps with a trademark, and cite us as the source of this term that's been commonly used in the language. And I've got people sending me links going back into the 1920s now with the term urban homesteading. So uh, anyway, there was a book out called The Urban Homestead, written a few years ago by a great couple of people that run a blog. And uh, I've reached out to them, and I'm going to get with them this week, and I'll have them on the show. We're not talking about the Dervaises when I bring them on. We're going to have them on to talk about their work and what they do in urban homesteading. But if you haven't heard this nonsense about the Dervaises, check out Friday's show. I only bring them up again because I did so much to promote them, and I recommended them so highly. I really feel that I need to make sure that everybody that's Heard me recommend them now knows that I've rescinded that recommendation based on their actions. If you want to know more, you can look it up for yourself. Um, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping now. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, silverandgoldshop.com. That's the wonderful, and I do mean wonderful, Mary Beth Maidmont that has some of the most innovative silver rounds available for you. From just really cool silver rounds to divisible silver rounds, you'll be able to find whatever you're looking for at silverandgoldshop.com, and you'll get amazing service. Silver and gold belong in your investment portfolio, and those silver one-ounce rounds make great gifts for kids that you would otherwise be handing a piece of plastic, Chinese-made crap that they'll play with for a day or two and won't be using next year. It'll be a lasting piece of value that can grow in value as they grow up. So really consider Silver and Gold Shop for your own investing and for those nieces, nephews, sons and daughters, and things like that. All right, next up, Harvest Eating with Chef Keith Snow. I'm going to have to get Keith back on to talk about more cooking. He's an amazing guy. He has an amazing website that teaches you how to use all this great food we talk about growing in your own backyard or getting from the local farm co-op or getting from the local uh, farmer's market or what have you. Eat seasonally, eat locally. Chef Keith teaches you how to cook that food in mouth-watering ways. So check out HarvestEating.com. Remember to visit our sponsors, all of them. Best way, go to SurvivalPodcast.com. Look for their banner in the right-hand margin. Click on the banner of the sponsor you want to visit, and you'll know you're dealing with a true Survival Podcast sponsor. Real quick, quick word on the gear shop. They've got most of the products back into the new gear shop and set up. There are only about 1,000, about 1,000 copper rounds left. Those are the AOCS TSP copper rounds. Everybody that's gotten them has been overjoyed with how beautiful they are despite the long pre-order wait. Um, if you've pre-ordered them, you should have them weeks ago, honestly, at this point. If you haven't, let us know. Uh, but there are about 1,000 left in the gear shop, over 11,000 sold. If you want some, get them today and check out the other cool stuff at the gear shop while you're there. Uh, you can find the gear shop, of course, at the survivalpodcast.com. Just click on the gear shop banner, or you can go to uh, survivalpodcast.net forward slash store to get directly to the gear shop. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content only to members. You get a bunch of great discounts. Just brought in three great seed, seed suppliers, for instance, uh, that are offering discounts like 10% or free shipping or what have you. So consider joining the MSB if you think the show's worth about 20 cents an episode because that's what it comes out to. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, your feedback today. And remember, if you want to send uh, some, something for feedback to a show like this, put question for Jack in the subject line. And uh, give me your question or your link or what have you. Remember, the best way to get on the show, be very brief and concise with your question or your point in summary, and then put me your link or if there's just a question, don't worry about a link, and then give me your background information. 
If you write me a book, I keep saying it and nobody listens. If you write me a book before the question and you bury the question in the book, you know, 300 words of text, I'm just not going to get it through my screening process. 300 to 600 legitimate emails from the audience a day. Two minutes a piece at 300 is 10 hours a day. I don't have 10 hours a day to read email. I do the best I can for you, but your conciseness and your brevity will do a lot. But check this first one out. This is, uh, this is kind of alarming, and I got this email from a lot of people. This particular one uh, comes from a guy named Mark, and Mark says, Uncle Jack, by the way, I have three uncles, Hugh Gledbeck and Ted Nugent. I saw this article and heard the soundbite on the way to work today and thought this would make one hell of a question for you to answer on TSP. Are there, in fact, already WMDs, weapons of mass destruction, within our borders? Thoughts. Rather than read what he sent me and read the, uh, the, the article, there's a video in the article, and I'm going to play it for you now. And this is legitimately a news source from San Diego, California. I'm going to play the entire five minutes of it. I'm going to let you listen to it, and I'm going to come back to you, and we're going to talk about it. And I'm going to tell you that... Uh, I'll tell you right now, I'm not sure yet, but I think you need to hear this, and I think you need to make your own decision on it. Last year, 340 cargo ships coasted into San Diego, all potentially a hiding place. Given the open access from the waterways and the Navy fleet being here, I'd say that absolutely San Diego's a target. San Diego's assistant port director, Al Haller, showed us the radiation monitors used to find nuclear devices. But when we started asking questions, we were surprised by what he said. So specifically, you're looking for the dirty bomb. You're looking for a nuclear device. Correct. Weapons of uh, mass effect. You ever found one? Not at this location. But they have found them? Yes. Well... Off camera, the public affairs officer interrupted. Okay. Okay. You never found one in San Diego, though? I would say at the port of San Diego, we have not. Have you found one in San Diego? Besides being San Diego's assistant port director, Haller is also a Customs and Border Protection officer. Do you ever find things that are dangerous? I mean, like uh, like a chemical agent or um, weaponized device? Uh, at the airport seaport, um, at our port of entry, we have not this past fiscal year, but various... Our partner agencies have caught items like that. We asked which agency, what type of weapons, when and where was the discovery made. We were promised a response later. It came 23 days after this interview in a carefully worded statement, saying Customs and Border Protection has not specifically had any incidents with nuclear devices or nuclear materials at our ports of entry. Once again, this was the original question for Al Haller. You ever found one? Not at this location. But they have found them? Yes. Haller confirmed weapons of mass effect were found in the past year, but not in the port. This was reinforced by another brief conversation. Do you ever find anything on ships like this? In terms of radiation sources? In terms of anything dangerous to the country? Um, we have not found anything at this location. Now, just this evening, a spokeswoman from the Department of Homeland Security called us to make it very clear 
that nuclear weapons have not been found anywhere in the United States. As for other devices, dirty bombs or chemical weapons, we simply don't know. They wouldn't answer questions about those types of weapons and won't tell us which partner agency Al Haller was talking about. Mitch, it seems like Haller was just trying to be honest with his answers. The unedited video, video really clearly shows that. So how does Homeland Security explain this? Uh, simply put, they, they suggested he was just nervous in the interview, that he misspoke. So we have let our audience decide. We've put part of the raw interview on our website, 10news.com. You can go there and you can see it for yourself. It's okay. completely unedited. All right. Thank you, Thank Mitch. Thank you, Mitch. And there is more to come. Our coverage... Well, okay, uh, you just heard it for yourself, and I think that it might do you well to go by the show notes today and check the link out and go listen to the, just a few seconds before and after that I cut out to kind of save time here. Uh, that might be some interest to you, but I think the big thing you need to see is the, the man's demeanor when he's talking. It's either he's genuinely just trying to be honest or the, the, the cover-up statement that he was just nervous could be true, but I don't think so. I'll leave it to you. You watch it. You listen to it. You make up your own determination. And you might think that I think the most alarming thing in here is that there's now some level of at least suspicion that not only are we the targets of weapons of mass destruction, but that some of them may have actually gotten through and been intercepted by law enforcement and we have not been told about it. That's actually not the most disturbing thing to me in this, uh, this little piece of video here. I'll tell you what is. Weapons of mass effect. How politically correct is this nation going to be before we realize the folly of our ways? No longer are they weapons of mass destruction. I mean, you know, first we're supposed to call illegal aliens, which is a legitimate term from a government form on immigration and been used in this country for decades undocumented workers, as though 100% of them are working. And I don't want to turn this into bashing illegal aliens or anything like that. I actually have less of a problem with the illegal aliens than the politicians and corporations that have created the system that they're exploiting. Far less. But it's just my point. We're supposed to call them undocumented workers. We can't call them terrorists anymore unless they're prior service military that are being put on a watch list. Right? They're revolutionaries, they're radicals, they're protesters, they're whatever, you know, politically correct bullshit fits. Now, now, a weapon is not even an implement of destruction. And the news are using it, the government's using it. I just, like, did some research and found this is prevalent everywhere, not just here, because it shocked me. Now, weapons are simply a means of getting an effect. Folks, this is why when you guys like get real deep into the conspiracy theories that require this hyper-competent government, I don't play ball with that. You have to be out of your freaking mind to look at something like a dirty bomb or a suitcase nuke or a biological weapon as a weapon of mass effect. You have to be an absolute stumbling, bumbling, inverted retard with your head so far up your, your fourth point of contact that you can smell your lungs. That's how retarded you have to be. In fact, I shouldn't use that word. Let me apologize because that is a, 
a word that shouldn't be used to describe these people. That's a legitimate medical condition. You have to be a freaking idiot with your head up your fourth point of contact. For those of you who don't know what fourth point of contact is, you're in the airborne. They teach you there's four points of your body that come into contact with the ground on a proper landing, and your fourth point is your ass. And that's where these people must have their heads. Now, overall, what do I think about the threat? I'll be honest with you. Don't know. I just don't know. I don't know if this man was telling the truth or if this man was legitimately nervous and not sure how to answer the questions. I, I can't really tell. I'm leaning toward he was just telling the truth. But whether or not they've actually intercepted any of this stuff, I'm telling you we're always in, we're always at threat of multiple things from Mother Nature to Mother Terrorism to our own government. And we need to be vigilant and we need to be on the watch. And I'm not really going to alter myself or start freaking out because of any of this. And here's why I have a little bit of skepticism in it. If the government actually intercepted a weapon, I think they would want to use it to say, look what we did. And to say, this is why we need more capability and more intrusion on your rights and more intrusion on your privacy. I don't know if they would hide it or if they would hold it up for everybody to see and say, look what we've done. And my instinct, based on their past performance, is they would hold it up for people to see. I'm just going to wait on this one. I am sure there's going to be follow-up with this gentleman. And if he's as honest as it seems like, eventually the truth is going to come out. But what I'm going to give you advice overall with is be as vigilant as always, plan for failure, and plan for success, If you live in a big city, have a plan to get out at a moment's notice. And otherwise, continue on with your life in the most self-sufficient, liberty-generating uh, manner possible. I'm not going to hype this like a lot of people seem to be doing, because I see no good that comes from that. Let's go ahead and take another email. So this next one uh, comes from me from someone we'll just call Bill, because that's his first name anyway. And he just gives me a link. And it's to a piece on Yahoo News. And it's yet another state that is looking at creating its own currency. And the title is South Carolina Lawmaker Wants Separate Currency for the State by Liz Goodwin. Came out on February the 14th, Valentine's Day, so I'm a couple weeks behind on bringing it to you. But uh, let's take a look at what it says. It says, South Carolina state politician wants the state to develop its own gold and silver-based currency in case the Federal Reserve collapses and hyperinflation ensues. If folks lose faith in the dollar, we need to have some kind of backup, State Senator Lee Bright told the Spartanburg Herald Journal's Stephen Largan. His bill asked the committee to look into the development of a state currency, citing the Constitution and the Supreme Court precedents to prove the bill's legality. Uh, Slate's Annie Lowry tracks down a similar bill in Georgia and Virginia, points out that the legislation reflects a larger trend of state politicians wading into monetary policy. A bill in Georgia would require all debts to the state uh, to be paid in pre-65 gold and silver coins. The Virginia proposal would let the state print its own money. Meanwhile, one politician in Utah wants to cut out the middleman entirely and allow the state's residents to run their very own mints. I imagine that would be minting silver and gold, which I can't see a problem with. Advocates of the currency alternatives to the dollar argue the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing techniques will lead to inflation. Uh, I think that's like 
Duh, the Federal Reserve says we're doing this to cause inflation. So I think they're right about that. Texas GOP Republican Ron Paul, who won the Conservative Political Action Committee's presidential candidate straw poll last week, which as much as I love Ron Paul, that straw poll don't mean a damn thing, folks, if anybody's hyping that to you, uh, has been Congress's most visible anti-Fed leader. Paul argues the Fed devalues the dollar and proposes the United States should gradually return to a gold-backed currency. In addition to the nightmarish logistical challenges involved with a state adopting a new currency, Lowry points out the commodity-backed currencies can also experience volatility. Yes, because gold goes up and down. For example, if a state collects income taxes in gold and then a big new gold mine is discovered, the metal's value would decline together with the state's revenue holdings. So for now, it's probably best for the individual consumers to re refrain from shifting over to sovereign state currencies, especially since none of the recently introduced currency bills stands a strong chance of passing. Blah, 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 and a little bit more. And I'll leave it there. Here's what I'm going to tell you, folks. As I've said on this show... And I've heard the gasps across America when I say it. I don't think the solution to the U.S. economy is a 100% gold-backed currency. And I don't think that will solve the problem any more than anything else. And I think as long as private banking institutions are involved in the control of our money supply, and our, our public money is controlled by private interests and directed by private interests, we will never be a free nation. We have to have an independent Sovereign currency of the United States of America beholden only to its people. And it should be an interest-free currency to create. If I earn it and wish to loan it to you at interest, that is profit and that is business. If the creation of the money itself incurs debt, we are slaves to the debt holder. It doesn't matter if the debt holder is the Federal Reserve or if they create a new federal organization that really is federal. As long as your money equals debt, whoever holds the debt enslaves you. That's what we currently have. And if we changed gold to be the means by which we enslave people, it's still enslavement. But the states doing this, I am for And the reason is because it's the only thing with a constitutional basis and it's the only thing under the current system that stands a chance in hell of actually holding up. Basically, it's Article 1, Section 10, first clause of the Constitution, uh, states that, that states, the individual states, cannot coin money. They do not have the right to create currency. And this is why some of you that believe the Constitution requires a gold standard are wrong. The federal government has the ability to coin money, and the states don't. But the states actually can do what they do, do kind of something similar. They can make coins and pay debts with it as long as the, the that's it's base it's it's uh, based on silver or gold. So the states are limited to silver and gold in their let's call it production of money, but they can't coin money, which means they can't create money. Because as long as they're limited to silver and gold, whatever they do with silver and gold is going to be tied to the national dollar. The federal government has the ability to coin money, uh, which actually gives them the ability to create money by any choice that they choose. They can set the weights and measures. So here's the problem with the gold bugs who say that means that the federal government has to use gold and silver. If they can set the weights and measures to anything they want, they can set the weights and measures to zero. So federal government has complete control over the national currency. The state of Florida, the state of Georgia, the state of Texas cannot come up with a Georgia dollar or a Texas dollar or a Florida dollar. It's unconstitutional. But they're allowed to use silver and gold. 
In fact, they're actually required, even though most of the state treasurers don't even know this exists in the Constitution, they're required to pay all their debts in silver and gold. Interesting, isn't it? So, if the state stockpiles silver and gold and issues certificates for the silver and gold, or actually issues the silver and gold and accepts it as payment and encourages it in their state, it's completely constitutional. So that's why I think states should look at this right now. The problem, the big problem. The states are bankrupt. States end up with a big pile of silver and gold. Someone's going to want to lay claim to it. You know who's going to lay claim to it? Federal government. And they're going to say, we need to take your gold and silver, Virginia, and we need to use it to pay your debts to your people. Because you can't pay your retired workers now. The only way to make this work is for the states in mass, large volume, to take the approach, let's say that Rob Gray has done with the American Open Currency Standard, and sell the currency into circulation so that it goes into the hands of the people And they use the, the, the profit by selling the currency into circulation to pay off their debt to the feds and divest themselves financially of the federal government. This is complicated. I can't really get in exactly how it would work. I might do a show someday on how it could be done. I think it's a good idea, but it's a very deep topic. But let's look at it this way. It would be a form of financial secession. The state of Florida wouldn't really leave the Union, or the state of Texas wouldn't leave the Union, but they would divest themselves of all financial obligations at the federal level and then refrain from doing federal business and only do interstate business, but of course that falls under federal commerce. So that puts some level of federal oversight into it, but it could be done. Big thing is, and this is the big thing for us, the states know the day of reckoning is coming and they're trying to get prepared for it. So whether they do it or not, we can have all these debates about constitutionality, we better do it for ourselves. We better be prepared for the day of reckoning, whatever form it may take. And that means stocking on our preps, being prepared emotionally, spiritually, financially, you know, uh, with, with supplies, with everything we need to be prepared individuals. Silver and gold is a part. But it ain't the only answer. I keep telling you that because I don't want to see you get hurt. Let's take another email. Here's an interesting email. Guy got my attention quick and got to his first point quick and then asked a series of questions. So he suckered me in and I'll answer them all because he did a good job of getting this point across fast. Hey, Jack, uh, this is from a guy named Doug, by the way. While listening to episode 599, I was interested to hear your choice of home defense shotgun load, namely 20-gauge 3-inch shell with four buck, number 4 buck. I use a 20-gauge Remington 870 for my home defense weapon because I'm relatively lightweight and don't have super body strength. Sure, I could probably shoot a 12-gauge just fine with adrenaline flowing, but I want a gun I enjoy shooting in non-stressful situations as well. I'm using 2 and 3-quarter inch shell with number 3 buck. I'm interested to know why you choose the 20-gauge. Also, is your personal def and what are your reasons for 3-inch magnum quote-unquote shell? While you're at it, perhaps you could clear up a confusion for me I'm finding online regarding the difference between two and three quarter and three inch shells and the new Magnum label. And then the Magnum label. Some writers say a three inch shell has more shot, but not more powder. And some say a Magnum has more powder. Others say that a Magnum only means three inches. It's all very confusing. I'm answering this one because I bet it's confusing for a lot of people that haven't grown up around shotguns their entire life. And we throw these terms around all the time, and we don't think about the fact that not everybody may be familiar with them and how much of it is hype. So here we go. Magnum on a shot shell. And it's not a shot bullet. It's a shot shell. It's a shell containing multiple shot or even, you know, let's say a slug if it's a single projectile. But shot shell is the proper terminology. means... 
for lack of a, a more confusing term, a full charge of powder. That's all that magnum means, is that there's more powder. Sometimes this is referred to as high brass, but more powder than a field load. So a field load would be something like a typical uh, shell that you would use to shoot clay pigeons, or shoot doves, or hunt quail. Now, then maybe you're going to go out and hunt pheasants, and they're a big, strong bird. So maybe you would go with a, a number six shot magnum. Now that magnum could be two and three quarter, it could be three inches. Right? Magnum is about the powder charge going to higher charge. Many times though, a magnum shell is not any faster, it doesn't have any more velocity than a, what we would call a field load. Okay? The reason is that in the magnum we have more powder and we have more shot. So that means we're delivering a greater quantity of shot at a similar velocity. Some magnums will have a slightly higher velocity. It all depends on how much total weight of shot I'm pushing and how many what they call drams equivalent of powder. Drams equivalent is a holdover from the black powder days. In the black powder days, you measure black powder with a dipper. And it, it, each unit of measurement was called a dram. So you might have two and three quarter drams equivalent for a shot shell load. And that means it's modern smokeless powder, but it's equivalent in power would be two and three quarter drams of powder. So the big difference between a three inch magnum and a two and three quarter inch magnum is there's more space for your charge, your shot charge, right? That charge is the wrong word. Charge is your powder. There's more equivalent room for your payload. So if I get number four buck in a 20 gauge with a three inch shell, I'm going to fit a few more pellets in there. That's all that it is. Why do I choose to use a three inch number four buck? Mainly because when I look for number four buck in a 20 gauge, three inch shells are generally what you will find. A two and three quarter inch shell with number four buck is just fine for home defense load. Why do I choose the 20 gauge as a home defense shotgun? Well, it's very simple. Um, I have a weapon for home defense so that if somebody comes into my home and threatens myself or my family, I can defend myself. And that means that if they mean to do me harm, I want to incapacitate them extremely quickly. And if that means their death, so be it. It's not my desire for them to be dead. But it is my desire for them to have no ability whatsoever in any way, shape, or form to continue to do harm or continue to attempt to do harm in any way, shape, or form. So I need a weapon that will absolutely incapacitate an individual as quickly as possible. And I don't believe that a 12-gauge is going to do that any more effectively than a 20-gauge in any meaningful way at home defense ranges. And in a home defense situation, a lighter, smaller framed weapon is a better tool for the job with everything else being equal. And a few foot pounds here and a pellet there ain't going to make a hill of beans a difference. I have yet to see anybody hit in the chest or the, th the thorax or the throat with buckshot out of a 20 gauge just want to round up out their business like before the shot went off. In other words, what I'm saying is the 20 gauge is more than up to the task of complete and total incapacitation in the hands of a trained user in a home defense situation. So the only thing stepping up to a 12 gauge does for me for that same application is feed my ego and give me more options for tactical accessories to go on my shotgun that I don't need or want in the first place 
and let me talk to my buddies about what a badass I am because I use 12 gauge. And I would say to anybody that thinks that the 12 gauge is, and now if you choose it, that's fine. I don't, you know, I'm not against it. If it's what you have, that's fine. Right? You don't own a 20 gauge, well, of course you're going to use a 12. Right? But anybody that feels that you're in some way reducing your capability by stepping down to a 20 gauge, so you got a 12, you got more power, why don't you use a 10 gauge? If the 20 gauge is, you know, not as effective as the, as the 12, why don't you go get a 10 gauge? I mean, they're out there, they're everywhere. Isn't it worth a little more recoil? I mean, hell, a 10 gauge, you can get them three and a half inch shells, right? Big old load. And, and see, that's my point, that we have to be realistic. Find the furthest distance in your home that you would ever have to take a shot. Take a 20 gauge with some number four buck or number three buck or whatever it is you want to use for home defense. Pattern that weapon at that distance. And you're going to find that it don't really matter. All this nonsense about this big spread and you're going to you know, point it in their general direction. you got to aim a shotgun at home defense ranges. You have a very, very dense pattern. And that's good because it's a highly lethal payload. So the reason I use a 20 gauge is the frame of the weapon is smaller and lighter and more agile in a situation that is going to be a combat situation. If I was worried about overall, you know, if I want to make a case for the 12 gauge over the 20, I'm going to do it in the dove field. With that larger payload, that bigger pattern, more dense patterns and things like that. At field ranges. If I want to make a, a case for a 12 gauge over a 20 gauge for defense and tactical situations, I'm going to take it out of situations with greater range. When I talk about inside the confines of your home, it don't make a hill of beans a difference on the lethality end, but the smaller, lighter, faster weapon is a better tool for the job. I'll put it to you this way. No matter how good you are with a 12 gauge, no matter how tough you are, how strong you are, how much recoil you can take, folks, I can shoot 300 Magnums, 338 Winchester Magnums till the, till the cows come home. I don't care. I'm still good, and you and I are still going to be better with a faster, lighter, lighter, lighter recoiling weapon. If it wasn't true, the United States government wouldn't have put all kinds of work into the M16 to take an already light recoiling 223 or 556 round, whatever you want to call it, and make it lighter felt recoil. Being able to stay on your target, more consistently hit your target, and better recover quicker from recoil, it's always good as long as the round is sufficient. So would I drop down to a 410? No. I don't feel there's enough lethality in three pellets out of a, of a 410. So all I got is all I got. But the balance for me is 20 gauge. Uh, next part of his question. On home defense weapons, it's my belief that a gun with a pressure-activated flashlight on board will be way more useful and safe than one without a light. I'm guessing that most HD situations uh, take place in dark hours. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. I understand the concern about pointing the light and therefore the weapon at friendlies, but I consider that a matter of training. I'm not going to put my finger inside the trigger guard unless I'm ready to fire. And besides the ones used for two-handed techniques for a handgun with a separate flashlight, you aren't going to be able to do the same thing. with. Basically, I think what he's saying is, you know, the one hand out here and the handgun over here doesn't work with a shotgun. I've got a long gun, and I've got to bring that hand down to control the weapon. I'm fine with a light on a shotgun. But I do think that men in general have a tendency to like to put lots of crap on things. We like to put 
really big tires and shiny wheels on old classic cars, and we like to put lights, lasers, doodads, and sights on guns. Uh, we are worse with accessorizing our crap than women are with making their purse match their shoes and their dress. When it comes to the tactical stuff, we like to do it. There are entire multi-million dollar companies that exist solely because men have this urge to accessorize. So my view is keep the stuff to a minimum, but a light on a home defense shotgun makes a lot of work. Might I offer you an alternative view, though? And I, I will believe this is true for most, most suburban locations. This is com completely not true unless there's a full moon out for my place in Arkansas. Totally different scenario. When I get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom or something like that, and I've had my eyes closed and I'm asleep and my pupils are opened up, the light from the surrounding city, and I don't mean like I got a real rude neighbor with a bright light or anything, just the, the, the ambient light that's out there, once my eyes have adjusted, I can walk through my home and I can see everything in my home very, very well. And I am only going to use the light if I absolutely need to in that situation, and I need to identify a target, I'm not sure of the target, what have you, because the light gives away some level of tactical advantage because it pinpoints my location. One thing we have to understand about home invasions, we may be going after someone who is our target, but if someone's there, we are their target. And they don't really care. You know, like, we need to worry about, is that my son coming home late? You know? Is that my wife got out of bed and I didn't realize she was gone? They don't have to worry about that. Anybody that's not them is the enemy as far as they're concerned. We need every tactical advantage that we can create for ourselves. And uh, I think that, you know, if you're going to put a light on that shotgun, make sure it's a very bright light. Something that, that when you hit somebody with it is going to be fully disoriented for long enough for you to decide whether you're going to pull the trigger, scream, get on the ground, or realize you've got it pointed at the wrong person. Um, and, and get it off them as quickly as possible. Now, I do want, I'm a little bit concerned with the email. Because the attitude that, You know, I'm not going to put my finger in that trigger guard until I know I need to shoot is a good one and a bad one. It's a two-edged sword. It is very dangerous for us to get overconfident and believe that in a hyped-up situation, we're infallible and we won't make the wrong mistake because we've trained ourselves over and over again. We can rely on our training. We will revert to our, you know, they say you will revert to your highest level of training. You will not. In a crisis situation, you will revert to your highest level of competence, not your highest level of training. So I just, I'm not putting the, the, the emailer down or anything. I'm just saying use a little bit of caution, everybody, with the attitude of if I need to use my weapon in my home, I'm not going to do anything wrong. Odds are you're going to do stuff wrong. Odds are you're going to screw something up. The training is so that you will be able to recover from the screw up. And do what needs to be done to protect yourself, your family, and your home. And I think if you talk to most people that have been involved in shootings, even when they came out on the positive side, if you dig deeper, you're going to find there were some mistakes made. It's just because they were mentally prepared, they were able to overcome them. So use a little bit of caution there. But a tactical light on a shotgun, I have absolutely no problem with. What I don't like on shotguns are heat shields bayonets, 
and all this other crap that if you ever have to, God forbid, use it, give some overzealous district attorney the ability to hold it up in front of a jury, right, and say, this was made for killing men. The flashlight, you can say, that's to make sure of my target. All right? What need does a home defense shotgun have of even a bayonet lug, even if a bayonet's not on it? I have seen an actual court case where, in my opinion, it was a legitimate shoot. Unfortunately, the homeowner uh, was was uh, exonerated by a very you know intelligent jury, which you know you're taking your life in your own hands with the intelligence level of any jury. My dad used to say, "You're taking your life in the hands of 12 people too stupid to get out of being on jury duty." And I see jury duty as a service, but a lot of people don't. So you, you can take his words with a grain of salt there. But this prosecutor stood in front of this jury and took that bayonet and said, what did he need with this other than to kill a man? And snapped it with that loud, <clears throat> you know, and it had a very dramatic effect. Again, the jury wasn't fooled, but if it doesn't have a practical purpose, stay away from an accessory. You know, just making it, if you want to make something up that looks cool, and you want to go play games with it and train with it and all, and that's, you know, use it for your three-gun tournament or whatever, that's fine. And if you're going to keep it in case we ever get into a real shit-hit-the-fan and that's going to be your shit-hit-the-fan go-to weapon, fine. But for home defense, a basic shotgun, a decent tactical light, a good home defense load, and pray to God you never to use it. You never need to use it, but be prepared if you have to. Let's go ahead and take another email. I've got another video for you. I've got actually two more videos for you today. This one's interesting. Uh, full disclosure, this originally came out in 2009, uh, so it's a while ago. I doubt many things have changed, but I, I get a lot of feedback sometimes when I talk about the Federal Reserve and I say they're not part of the government and they have no real oversight and that they can basically do anything they want from people that say it's not that it's private, it's that it's private and public. The government does use the Federal Reserve. The government does control the Federal Reserve. We need a private currency, not a public one, and certainly not the fascist mix we have. And I agree with some of that sentiment, but my point is no one's minding the store at the Federal Reserve. No one. And they do things all the time off the books, that we don't know about. They do things on the books that are not explained and no one checks into it. Even the person whose job it is to know. Even the person whose job it is. And who am I talking about? How about Elizabeth Coleman, who is the Inspector General of the Federal Reserve. Inspector General. You get the point. Her job is audit and oversight of the Federal Reserve. What I'm about to play for you is her sitting in front of the subcommittee on finance, and when you hear the questions and the answers, it should shock you. If in any way, if you haven't been paying attention, it should shock you. To me, it's just par for the course. But those of you who believe that our government exercises any true control over the Federal Reserve, listen up for the next few minutes and prepare to... Uh, to maybe get a view of things that are going on up there that even a lot of you uh, that know how bad it is would not have expected. This is uh, this is pretty alarming. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, Inspector Coleman, you're the Inspector General for the Federal Reserve, right? Okay. That's correct. Have you done any investigations concerning the Federal Reserve's role in deciding not to save Lehman Brothers, which led to shockwaves that went through the entire financial system? Um, in that particular area, you know, I don't generally comment on specific investigations, but we do not currently have an investigation in that particular area. 
All right. What about the $1 trillion plus in expansion of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet since last September? Have you conducted any investigations regarding that? We, right now we have a, um, it's called, we call it a review. And uh, so I don't know if you could, the term investigation may have different uh, connotations. So we're actually conducting a fairly high-level review of the various lending facilities collectively, which would include, um, you know, the TALF, um, a variety of the different programs that are in process. So we're looking at them at a fairly high level to identify risk. Well, I understand that, but we're talking about events that started unfolding eight months ago. Have you reached any conclusions about the Fed expanding its balance sheet by over a trillion dollars since last September? We have not yet reached any conclusions. Do you know who received that money? For the we're, – we're in the process right now of, of doing our review and um, – Right, but you're the Inspector General. My, answer, my question to you specifically is do you know – who received that $1 trillion plus that the Fed extended and put on its balance sheet since last September. Do you know the identity of the recipients? I do not know. We have not looked at that specific area at this particular point on those reviews. What about um, Bloomberg's report that there are trillions of dollars in off-balance sheets transactions that the Federal Reserve has entered into since last September? Are you familiar with those off-balance sheet transactions? You know, I, I think it may be um, important at this point, too, just to bring up um, a certain aspect related to our jurisdiction. And just to, to clarify perhaps some of my earlier uh, comments, we are the Inspector General for the Board of Governors, and we have direct oversight over board programs and operations and are also able to look at board-delegated functions to the reserve banks as well as um, it's o the board's oversight and supervision of the reserve banks. We do not have jurisdiction to directly go out and, and audit reserve bank activities specifically. Nevertheless, in our lending facilities project, for example, we are looking at the, the board's oversight over the program and uh, to the extent that extends out to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Well, I have a copy of the Inspector General Act here in front of me, and it says, among other things, that it's your responsibility to conduct and supervise audits and investigations relating to the programs and operations of your agency. That's correct. So I'm asking you if your agency has, in fact, according to Bloomberg, extended $9 trillion in credit, which, by the way, works out to $30,000 for every single man, woman, and child in this country. I'd like to know, if you're not responsible for investigating that, who is? We actually... We have responsibility for the Federal Reserve's programs and operations audits to conduct audits and investigations in that area. Um, in terms of who's responsible for investigating, would you mind repeating the question one more time? What have you done to investigate the off-balance sheet transactions conducted by the Federal Reserve, which, according to Bloomberg, now total $9 trillion in the last eight months? I'll have to look specifically at that Bloomberg article. I, I'm not um, – I, I don't know if I have actually seen that particular one. That's not the point. The question is, have you done any investigation or auditing of off-balance sheet transactions conducted by the Federal Reserve? At this point, we're at the very – we're conducting our lending facility project at a fairly high level and have not gotten to a specific level of detail to really be in a position to respond 
to your question. Have you conducted any investigation or auditing of the losses that the Federal Reserve has experienced on its lending since last September? We're still in the process of conducting that review. Until we actually, you know, go out and and gather the information, I'm not in a position to really respond to to the specific question. So are you telling me that nobody at the Federal Reserve is keeping track on a regular basis of the losses that it incurs on what is now a $2 trillion portfolio? I don't know if you're, you're telling me that there are, you're mentioning that there's losses. I'm just saying that we're not until we actually look at the program and have the information, we are not in a position to say whether there are losses or to respond in any other way to that, to that particular Mr. Chairman, my, my time is up, but I have to tell you honestly, I am shocked to find out that nobody at the Federal Reserve, including the Inspector General, is keeping track of this. Well, what do you think? I mean, do you, do you believe me now? I mean... I keep telling folks that this this organization does whatever the hell it wants and is accountable to nobody, and I keep having people explain to me how I'm wrong about that. Can you can you respond to this? This is the person whose job it is to know. Uh, what about this one trillion dollars? Have you tracked the losses on it? Uh, well, we get a, we have to uh, actually start looking at that program. Uh, what about the nine trillion dollars of off the books total credit extended uh, that we can find so far? Uh, do you know where that money went? Oh, we're working at a high level. Nine trillion dollars isn't a high enough level to work at. The lady had no answer, no answer for anything other than we're looking into it or that's not our jurisdiction. What about auditing this stuff? Uh, that's not our jurisdiction. Uh, here's the job description of what you're supposed to do. It includes auditing. Is that true? Yes. Well, why didn't you do it? That's uh, not our jurisdiction. I mean, you know, and this, uh, well, we're still looking into that. We, we, we still are looking into that. We haven't formed a conclusion yet. The whole way this lady sounded, do you know what she sounded like to me? In my years in business, when I brought managers and salespeople and the like in front of me for review, when I was very close to firing their asses, this is the way the conversations went. Exactly like this. Uh, 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 well, I'm not sure. Uh, I'll have to check into that. I'm not sure I read that article. You know, I, I don't know if I really read that particular one from Bloomberg. And the guy says, that's not the point. Where did the money go? Your job is to, to stay in touch with this. Now, here's what makes this even worse. This lady is not part of the government. This is not Inspector General of the Federal Reserve for, you know, the United States Congress. She's like an internal affairs officer in the police department. She's not even good at lying. She's not even good at covering her own ass. She's basically saying, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know. We're still looking into that. We're working at a higher level. I'm not quite down to that level of looking at it. Haven't formed an opinion on this yet. You know why? Because she doesn't really do anything. That's why. She doesn't do anything at all. What she actually does is investigate the banks they loan the money to. Not what they're doing themselves. She doesn't do her job by her own job description. Those of you who still have any belief that the Federal Reserve is accountable in any meaningful way to the United States government and therefore the United States people, I tell you after listening to this, you're only deluding yourselves. This is a private organization that holds our debt 
and therefore enslaves our population, and they have got to go. And that's why we need to be supporting the work of people like Representative Paul and his son, who are both in one in the House and one in the Senate, trying to get a real public audit of the Federal Reserve. And I believe the reason there's so much resistance to it is because everybody knows how bad it's going to be when the dirt comes out. But even I, even I who have been giving you this message for so long, was absolutely shocked when I watched this interview for the first time by, uh, this is Je the guy speaking, is Alan Grayson of the Finance Subcommittee. I believe that's the committee that Ron Paul is now the chairman of. So, um, if you have any faith that anybody up there is looking out for you, I hate to be the person that takes it away from you, but I hope this kind of drives it home. Let's go ahead and take another one of your emails. Uh, this next email comes from Lauren, and Lauren says, uh, not really a question, but a link to a video about China and Russia buying tons, uh, in brackets, literally, of gold. And I've got a link for me here. So I'm going to go ahead and play this video for you as well. I know there's a lot of video stuff today, but still, uh, still dealing with the voice, if you can hear it. And uh, these are some pretty interesting things, too, I want you to, uh, to take in. I want you to listen, and I want you to listen toward the end for the real bomb in this interview that I don't think anybody else is even paying attention to. Um, the, the whole interview is interesting, but the end of it is something we really need to talk about and we need, really need to understand. There's been a lot of chatter in the gold community about China getting on a gold standard. Currently, China's central bank only has 1,054 tons of gold in its reserves, so is China actually buying gold? Joining me is George Milling, Stanley Managing Director at the World Gold Council. So, George, that's my question. Is China buying? Um, nobody really knows, and China doesn't tell anybody. What they do is they've been buying periodically for a number of years now, and every once in a while they'll tell the world what they have done over a previous period. Like, for example, in 2009, they reported they'd added about 400 tons of gold to their reserves in the previous six years. Um, we don't know when the next announcement will be coming. But that said, there are very strong flows of gold going into China right now, and there have been, there's a number of people in the market who wonder whether the private sector is capable of absorbing all of the gold that's flowing into the country. Nobody knows the answer. We'll find out when China's ready to tell us. So China has its reserves in gold about 1.6 percent. Do you have any estimation of what they might raise it to if they were buying 3 percent, 2 percent? 100 percent just seems totally... Oh, I, don't, I don't think anybody would suggest 100%, probably not even me, and, and I'm a fairly optimistic person about gold. Um, but I think that research suggests that a lot more than one point, whatever it is, percent right now would make sense for them. And certainly there's a lot of, of academic interest, both in China and in the rest of the world, that thinks they ought to own maybe somewhere in the uh, around 10% or something of that kind. I think basically everybody's agreed they should have a lot more than they do have right now, especially given the um, level of their overexposure to the dollar. Um, but what that, what that level ultimately buy might be, nobody really knows. So who else is buying, or who else will be buying then in 2011? Well, Russia's already come out and said quite definitely um, that it plans to buy more than 100 tons in the coming 12 months. Logically, we would expect the Philippines to continue buying. They buy, sometimes they sell, but also they do, they do continue to buy local gold production. 
how supportive do you think this will be for gold prices, as supportive as we saw in 2009, 2010, early 2010? Oh, look, I think that the, the thing that's supportive for gold prices in terms of central bank activity isn't so much what they do on the demand side. It's the fact that for 20 years, the official sector, central banks and multilateral institutions, were net sellers of somewhere between four and 500 metric tons of gold a year to the private sector. That period is over. They are now no longer on the supply side. Side. I'm going to wrap it up again with China. Do you think a gold standard would be feasible for them? I think it's unlikely. I mean, my, my understanding is that if a country is a member of the IMF, then it is expressly forbidden from, from linking its currency to, the gold, to, to gold. All right, George, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm Alex Steele for The Street. Did you hear the big one at the end? Did you hear it? If a country is part of the IMF which is the International Monetary Fund, something that this nation funds hugely disproportionately to the rest of the world, they are expressly forbidden from linking their currency to gold and backing their currency with gold. I did not know that. I learned something today. Did you? I'm hesitant to comment on exactly how much their meaning there is in that. Because I need to do some more investigation. Because this is something I found out just a little bit before you did. Did you know that? If a country is part of the IMF, which just about every major nation is, they are expressly forbidden from backing their currency with gold or tying their currency to gold. That's, you know, it makes me think of the church lady again from 1980s, you know, on Saturday Night Live. Isn't that special? Expressly forbidden. Now, there are some other things to be learned here. I think the, the number they gave there for Russia was 400 tons. No, I'm sorry, I screwed that up. It's 400 tons. It's 100 tons. But 100 tons. That's a lot of gold, folks. That's a lot of gold. You want to convert that to dollars for, you know, for a second? There are like 35,273 ounces. 35,273 ounces to a metric ton. So we're looking at a little bit more than 3.5 million ounces for 100 tons. To be exact, 3,527,300 ounces of gold uh, for 100 metric tons, which Russia is buying this year. So now when I take today's gold price, which is $1,401, that's the exact price of gold, 1401 even, and I multiply that by the total number of ounces in 100 tons of gold, I get a number, get this folks, Russia is going to invest in gold this year, $4,941,747,300 at today's gold price. Call it, just round it up, and call it $5 billion going into gold by the Russians alone this year, $5 billion. You know, other than a few people, that's more than the net worth of most of the wealthiest people on the planet. There's a few over that, but there ain't a whole bunch of them. $5 billion worth of gold just this year, in addition to the reserves they already have. So despite that I don't think gold is a magic metal that will solve all of the Earth's problems, and I don't think that you should put 100% of everything you own into gold, and I think if you do, you're a fool because it could work out the other way, and all the eggs shouldn't go into one basket, I do think you should own some gold. If the Russians believe in it enough to put five billion dollars or five yeah five billion dollars in there, maybe we should put some money in there. What does five billion dollars come out to in ruples? Well, one dollar is roughly uh, twenty nine 
um, 29 rubles. So if we wanted to look at what the Russian ruble investment in gold will be this year. I had to write this number out to get it right because reading on a computer was complicated without commas in it. Here you go. This is using the exact, you know, using the exact numbers, the 4.9 uh, billion uh, dollars, U.S. dollars, 146 billion, 275 million, 817,681 rubles. The Russians are putting 146 billion units of their currency into gold this year. That's a lot of money, folks. Whether you stack that up in dollars or rubles uh, or any other thing, that's that's a hundred tons of gold is a whole lot of cabbage, folks. And then the other thing, you know, generally speaking, you buy low and sell high. And if you've got inside information, okay, you tend to do a little bit better at it than the average schmo on the street. That's why, you know, your financial liar, I mean advisor, just says just stay for the long haul um, because time in the markets is difficult. And, and playing and trading the markets is extremely difficult. But people like the bigwigs out there, like entire national treasuries, they really know what's kind of going on, and they can do this. So the other thing that will get glossed over in that little piece of video that I played for you was that up until now, up until recently, the central banks have been the main sellers of gold. It's the Central Bank of China, the Central Bank of Russia, Central Bank of the Philippines. They've primarily been on the supply side. This gentleman just said that trend is reversed. The central banks are now buying. Gold's at an all-time high, but the people with the most inside information are still bullish and buying the gold. What does this tell you? International Monetary Fund says if you're part of us, which means you're part of the global economy, you can't back your currency with gold. So the gold doesn't help them back their currency, but yet they're buying the hell out of it. What does that mean? That means that they're scared. They're scared of the current global economy. And what's the entire global economy based on right now? The United States dollar, which is a debt-backed currency, and all the other nations have debt-backed currency backed by the dollar's debt. I mean, it is one of the most uh, alarming signals you could ever see to see these nations investing in gold the way they are. Another thing that goes unsaid in this video that I, th I think we really need to understand about the Chinese. The Chinese are smart people, and they under understand the value of manufacturing production output. Right? So, in other words, would you rather own gold or a gold mine, assuming the gold mine has lots of reserves and is producing, and you could get either one for the same cost. Well, the smart person thinking long-term, the person playing chess, not checkers, I want the gold mine. Every time I need more gold, we'll just dig some more out of the hole. So the Chinese investment in gold compared to the Russian investment in gold looks rather small. But again, like this guy said, we're not even sure how much gold they're buying. There's a lot of gold going into China that we just look at their private sector and go, there ain't that much money in the private sector in China. Remember, everything the public owns in China belongs to the government anyway. But the bigger issue is China is investing out the butt in Africa. And one of the things they're buying are gold mines. And the numbers that you've heard today do not take into account the rights to gold reserves and the ownership of gold reserves throughout the world, specifically in Africa, that have been acquired by the Chinese over the recent years. China's playing chess. 
All this talk you hear about the U.S. government worried that China could be the next superpower and how do we stay, it ain't going to happen. They are the next superpower. We need to be prepared for it to happen. Gold will play a role in their eventual endgame. And that's why I think you need to own some. Does that mean it's the end of America or whatever other bullshit people are trying to use to sell to you in fear? No, but it means to be prepared for change. Change is a constant. Change always comes. Those who are prepared for to accept the change and make the most of it are the ones that prosper. And those who believe the change won't come or think they can prevent it are always the ones that are harmed and falter. I want you to be prepared for this change. I want you to have gold and silver as part of your portfolio, but I want you to think broader and bigger than that. But we do have to pay attention to stuff like this. Let's see if we can squeeze one or two more in before we wrap up today. Okay, let's do something a little lighter on the uh, the permaculture, agriculture, uh, self-sufficiency side of things. This comes from a gentleman who calls himself, or a lady for that matter, I really don't know. It's a general new, gender neutral name. Uh, the person calls himself Hint. And it's all, it's a response, uh, in the, 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 uh, the comments to episode 606, uh, on permaculture design considerations. For all I know, it's a spammer, but it's a cool site, so I don't even care if it's spam. This is awesome. Uh, but it's a link to a tool on a website called savetherain.com, and it's like save-the-rain.com. Uh, and in forward slash world hyphen bank. So save dash the dash rain dot com forward slash world dash bank. And what it is is a tool that uses Google Maps. And what you do is you look up your home by your address on, on Google Maps and blow it up to where you're happy with working with it. And you put four little marks on the each of the corner of your roof and it calculates using the map scale the square meters of your roof. And then you click uh, calculate, basically, you're finished, and it calculates, based on your annual rainfall for your region, how much rain you could collect off of your roof and what that could do for you uh, for several different things, like growing crops or flushing toilets, just to put it into a perspective for you, because a big number may not um, mean anything to you. So here's the results from me calculating my place in Arkansas. says the area of your roof is about 223 meters squared. The amount of rainfall that your area receives in a year is 1,500 millimeters. Um, this is obviously all in metric numbers. Uh, you can convert really easy with the Google conversion tool if you want to, to gallons and ounces but or in inches. Um, but it says I could harvest... Let me make sure I get this right. 334,640 liters of water a year just off the roof of my home in Arkansas. Um, and it says that's enough water that I could flush an average toilet 55,775 times. I guess even if I'm eating beans, I'm not going to need that much in a year. So I guess that's, again, just to put it in perspective for you, because a big number like 334,000 liters is hard to get your head around. But it also tells me how much I could grow with it. It says I could grow 572 kilograms of corn, 174 kilograms of soybeans, 216 kilograms of rice, or 458 kilograms of wheat. And since I'm not real big on kilograms, let me just take something like corn and convert the kilograms uh, to, to a, you know an English equivalent. And basically, with knowing it's about two... 2.2 pounds to kilogram or something like that. If we look at the corn, um, and it says it's 572 kilograms of corn, 
That means there's enough water collected just by the roof of my house, not on my whole property, just by the roof, to grow about 1,200 pounds of corn. 1,200 pounds of corn, uh, let's say about a 1,000 pounds of wheat, half a ton of wheat. And the point from this website is that a lot of this rainwater is going to waste. Now, look, I know if you live in certain parts of like Colorado and all, and you don't have water rights to your property, it's technically illegal for you to catch water off your roof. I'm going to tell you why I think that's foolish. A lot of that water hits the ground and runs off with such force, it never ends up in the reservoirs and dams. It causes erosion, it causes damage, and it ends up dispersed to lots of places, but it doesn't end up in the watershed uh, the way that we would expect that it would. But that's an awful lot of water, and I think for us as, um, let's say, modern survivalists that worry about our water supply in the future... Rain catch is something we really need to consider. Somebody else emailed me this week as well asking me, do I have plans for rain catch? And I thought this was a better way to cover it than just responding to the question. Uh, just, you know, synchronistically, uh, somebody posted this link on the uh, blog in the comment section. But let's, let me run a different number because Hot Springs area gets a lot more rain. Uh, it's a lot drier here in Arlington. Even though my house is technically bigger here in Arlington, it's a two-story, so I have a smaller roof. So let me run the numbers real quick for you for, you know, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, what would I get if I harvested the water off my typical suburban two-story home in an area that gets some rain, but not a ton of rain? And here's the numbers kicked out for my home, which, again, I think is very... Uh, very indicative of the average suburban or, or dare I say, if the Deveuses get mad, the average urban homestead has a roof probably about like mine. And I think that my rainfall here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area is probably indicative of much of the United States. There's some drier areas to be sure, but it's not really wet. Anybody on the East Coast can get far more rainfall than I do. Uh, but it says that my roof area here is on only 126 meters squared, and we get about 900 millimeters of rain annually. So that means I could uh, harvest about 113,000 liters of, uh, of water. Uh, to put that in a number that makes more perspective for the average American that thinks in gallons, that's 31,000 gallons a year that my average suburban home in a, you know, not a particularly moist environment could harvest a year. 31,000 gallons. Now let's not look at how much corn um, I could grow with that. Let's look at how much water would my family really need to, to get by. You know, it's really a bad situation. We just need to survive. 31,000 gallons of water would take the average family through a year. Um, it might not let you take four-hour showers anymore, but it certainly would provide your needs and beyond your needs. And I think this is what we don't realize in America. We have we are blessed in 90% of the nation with plenty of water. It's that we don't use, utilize it effectively. But rain catch has some things. I mean, we have to do some honest drawbacks here. Um, you know, we go back to the numbers that I gave you for my Arkansas homestead, and uh, it's a lot of water. I've cleared the screen and got the new numbers, but I, I think I was said it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 liters. You know, 300,000 liters, like, you convert that to gallons, you're going to get like 80,000 gallons. You know, if you had 5,000 gallon tanks, you'd need 16 of those just to effectively capture all that rain. So, it, you know, I, if you look at what Marjorie's done down there at, uh, you know, uh, at her homestead in, in South Texas, honestly, that's about what she's collecting. That's about what the, the reserve tank she set up. But that's a very large operation, so it's not very practical in a suburban home. 
So it's not, you know, on some levels, the numbers that you'll get from this tool, and it's fun to play with and realize what resources you have, it's, it's not just a matter of how much water you could collect, but how much water you practically can collect. I think it also has some other uses, though, this tool. And I think like one of the things you can do with it uh, is maybe you find out that, you know, if you live in a, in a really rainy environment, uh, more so than I do, you know, for, again, the East Coast and parts of the West Coast, uh, Northwest area, we get tons of rainfall, guys. Um, pond, pond building here, you might be surprised that even in a small landscape with all that hard catchment of a roof, how much water you can actually catch. I think the other thing you can do is it's a really great tool for if you kind of know an area where you're going to build like an outbuilding or a greenhouse and you want to collect water just for watering your plants from a smaller roof, you could get a number for that. And I think you could get a pretty good rough estimation of how much, like if you know you have a slope and you're going to build a pond in an entrapment section for water, uh, you could get a pretty good idea of how much water that, that pond is going to trap. You'll have to take some factor into consideration, like how much of the water, when it rains, is going to be absorbed by the land versus run to the pond. Because if you take, for instance, a roof, you're getting 100% of the water that hits the roof is going to run off. None of it's going to penetrate if you have a good roof on your house. But when water hits a field, a lot of that water goes into the soil. But a lot of it runs off. So based on how hard your soil is, how permeable it is, how your slope is, it might be 10% of the water that hits. It might be 90. But by looking at your area and making a rough estimation and looking at all the land that slopes toward the area you're going to impound the water, you should be able to use this tool and maybe make a couple different blocks, add it up, and get a rough approximation of how much water you could expect to impound. And then as you calculate the size of your pond, it could help you figure out whether your pond is going to be capable of being or remaining full uh, based on the size and depth of your pond. And it may help you with pond design as well. So I just thought this was an awesome tool. It was a great tip from someone calling themselves tip and uh, i'll provide a link in today's show notes and if nothing else look up your home and calculate your roof uh water catchment just so you know what resource you do have available to you the last one i want to finish up with today is a little bit depressing and i'm sorry but I i've got to share this one with you because it's another one of those ones where i can say i was right and here's another indication of it and this is why you need to pay attention this is why you need to protect yourself but it's also one of those ones where I go, damn, I wish I was wrong. I really do. I want you guys to understand that. When I tell you something alarming and then it comes up to be true, I, I just, you know, I take no joy in it. But I've been telling you that my prediction in the future is the death of the suburbs. That what we're going to see is more and more people moving into highly urban or very rural. And this belt zone, uh, this small town type thing is going to die off. Not into complete oblivion, but to be far less prominent than it is today. We'll have more and more Americans moving further out and further in, and the, the middle is going to experience what I call a die-off. And that die-off, again, is not its elimination, but a very, very big change in the total population density and the average American suburb in most parts of the nation uh, going to be much less dense and a lot of housing either being torn down or repurposed or something like that. Well, here's an article from the Associated Press, and this author is very clearly a socialist liberal. Now, I know that you're like, well, what's new? When you hear the article, you'll hear what a dramatic, open, uh, you know, this is almost reads more like commentary than news, 
but the facts in it are irrefutable despite the political leanings of the author. So I'm going to read most of the article to you anyway, and please just like accept the fact that there's some bullshit in here and focus on the facts, the numbers, and the hard statistics of what's going on. So again, this is from the AP. It's on Yahoo News. Census estimates show one in four U.S. counties are dying. That's counties are dying. Welch, West Virginia, nestled within America's once thriving coal country, 87-year-old Ed Shepard laments the prosperous era gone by when shoppers lined the streets and government lent a helping hand. Because the evil government's not helping anymore. That's It gets worse, too. Wait. Uh, now here, here, as in one-fourth of all U.S. counties, West Virginia's graying residents are slowly dying off. Hit by an aging population and a poor economy, a near-record number of U.S. Uh, counties are experiencing more deaths than birth uh, in their communities, a phenomenon, dem- dem- a phenomenon dem- demographers call, quote, natural decrease. <laughs> Sounds very similar to my terminology, doesn't it? Uh, years in the making, the problem is spreading and prolonged job slump and a push by evil Republicans in Congress to downsize the government and federal spending. I added one word there. Let me reread that sentence. That was wrong with me to do. Years in the making, the problem is spreading amid the prolonged job slump and a push by Republicans in Congress to downsize government and federal spending. My commentary here, because you know the, the evil Republicans want to cut 1% out of the budget. They want to go from 3.7 or 3.8 to 3.7 trillion dollars in spending. So that's that's the reason for this. Not that we've totally screwed everything up. Back to the article. Local businesses in Welsh began to shutter after U.S. Steel departed McDowell County, which sits near Interstate 77, once referred to as the quote hillbilly highway unquote, because it promised a way to jobs in the South. Young um, young adults who manage to attend college, the high school dropout rate is 28%. Hey, how about this? The high school failure rate in Dallas County is uh, is 50. So it, it could be worse. It's not just because of hillbillies. Uh, they're doing better in Dallas. Uh, almost twice as good anyway. Uh, compared with about 8% nationwide who can't wait to leave. Uh, so the ones that graduate, they say they're, they're out of there. For some reason, the fish in nearby Elkin Creek left too. Do you know why the fish in Elkin Creek left? Because they're mining coal and they're dumping sulfur in the water and the sulfur's oxidizing and killing the fish and taking up the oxygen levels. So I said about coal, it's not the CO2, it's the mining dump. Uh, there is no reason for you to come to Wells, says Shepard, wearing a Union 76 cap at a makeshift auto shop he still runs after six decades. This is nothing but a damn ghost town in a welfare county. So while the author says it's the government causing the problem by not helping, he's saying that, well, the welfare is really kind of the cause. In all, roughly 760, this is the part that you really need to hear. In all, roughly 760 of the nation's 3,142 counties are fading away, stretching from industrial areas near Pittsburgh and Cleveland to the vineyards outside San Francisco to rural areas of East Texas and the Great Plains. Once booming housing areas such as retirement communities in Florida have not been immune. West Virginia was the first to experience a natural decrease statewide over the last decade, with Maine, Pennsylvania, and Vermont close to following suit, according to the latest census figures. As a nation, the U.S. population grew by just 9.7% since 2000, the lowest decennial rate since the Great Depression. 
In other words, we're not reproducing. And I'll tell you what, most of that reproduction and most of that expansion is by immigrant communities. That's the only thing growing the population of the U.S. anymore. Natural decrease is an important but not widely appreciated demographic phenomenon that is reshaping our communities in both rural and urban cores of large metro areas, said Kenneth Johnson, a sociology professor and demographer at the University of New Hampshire's Carsey Institute who analyzed the census numbers. Boy, I'm glad we have guys like him. Johnson said common threads among dying counties are older whites. <laughs> white people's fault, who no longer are having children and an exodus of young adults who find little promise in the region and seek jobs elsewhere. The places also have fewer Hispanic immigrants who on average are younger and tend to have more children than other groups. It supports what I just told you. The downturn in the U.S. economy is only exasperating the problem, said Johnson, whose research paper is being published next month in the Journal of Rural Sociology. In some cases, the only thing that can pull an area out of the is an influx of young Hispanic immigrants or new economic development. You can read the rest of the article you want because, again, like I said, it's the Republicans' fault, there's not enough welfare, all this crap. Um, the article is written by an openly statist-minded socialist person. It, it, it's, it's, it almost, again, slaps you in the face. It's not being worthy of being called news, but the numbers are hard numbers. Here's what it means to me. The average American has gotten to a point where two kids is enough, so the population growth has stalled. So without growth, and even with moderate growth fueled by immigrants, which I'm not putting them down, they legitimately are the main growth in, in the population right now, without a lot of growth, there's less total economic activity and output. On top of this... The economy overall has been hurt because of many things. The outsourcing of jobs, the excessive growth of the government. The, to insinuate that a government that has basically doubled in size in the last 10 years, doubled in size, has not spent enough money to fix the problem is asinine. It really is. The government has continued to grow bloated, which has pulled more and more away from the private sector and actual productivity. The nation's resources and infrastructure are strained, and the cost of energy continues to go up, and the cost of living and the cost of food. People in that scenario are going to make one of two very logical choices in mass. If the choice is stay in the system and do the best in the system, then the goal becomes to reduce the expense of living in the system. And the easiest way to do that is move closer to where you work and be able to use public transportation or drive less or walk or bike to work or whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's a choice people are making. What this does is it pulls people out of the suburbs into the cities. Okay? The other choice is the hell with the system. I'm going to become more self-sufficient and more independent. Some people will settle and do urban homesteading. Some will do suburban homesteading, but many will say, the hell with this. Had enough, and they will move further out. And what you end up with is all of these population centers from small town to big city suburbs dwindling away. And to me, what it means again for us is we don't freak out, don't go selling your house tomorrow because Jack Spirko told you this. You know, what it means though is that, again, we are living, to quote John Adams, in serious 
times. There are many revolutions taking place all over the world and right in our own nation right now. There are revolutions not being, mostly not being fought with guns and knives and swords and, and a military force. There are revolutions in thought and a lifestyle. And some of them are very positive and some of them, in my opinion, are quite negative. But all of them, and revolution means a dramatic change in a relatively short period of time. And the, all of these, these individual revolutions, all of these individual large changes in relatively short periods are adding up to a very large change in a relatively short period of time. And folks, we have our, our, our math and our numbers and our history all screwed up in this country. We now consider history last month. 20 years, two decades, is a massively short period of time for major change to take place in the world. Technology, we know, moves very, very fast. But when it comes down to which nation is the most prominent in the world, or which nation is the largest importer or exporter of a given good or service, or which nation is becoming a world leader, or how the people of a nation think, function, act, do, and be, 20 years is like that. The United States, folks, whether we want to admit it or not, in a world run by a big pack of dogs, we're still a puppy. We're still a puppy. We're 200 and change years old in a world where many nations are millennia in age. Two, three thousand years they've been around. And we have an arrogance of, of, of a level of prominence that we will not always have. Will that prominence truly fall in our lifetimes? I'm not going to say definitely. I'm going to tell you that I fear that it's inevitable. But if we believe that it will never happen, we are fools. We are fools and we are behaving foolishly. We must be prepared, again, for both the successes and the failures that will come in these changes. But I do believe that in the future, some portion of our suburban communities will be all but abandoned or only be inhabited by 25 to 30% of the people that would have inhabited them you know, two decades before. Massive change is coming. And you need to decide, going into the future, what you want. If you like that suburban lifestyle, you need to look for the community that has the resiliency to migrate these changes. You need to move to the states with the right mentality, with the right liberty-oriented attitude. And then those communities that are going to be able to be outside of the major business centers and be able to evolve forward. If you like the urban lifestyle, you need to pick the right city with the right natural resources around it. And if you like the, 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 the rural lifestyle, you need to pick the right community for that. It's okay to stay in that center that's going to decline, but you got to pick the right center. It's okay to move into that urban area if that's what you really want, but you better have a plan to get out if things go south. But I think for a lot of people that listen to this show, our solution is going to be dramatically different. Our solution is to get out. And again, I'm not here to tell you what one is right for you, but I am saying as you're making your decisions, please take all of the things that are occurring in the world into consideration. And the biggest thing to take into consideration is yourself and your family and what will really make you happy. 
I mean, in spite of all the things that we talk about that are negative on this show, all of the reasons we need to prepare for failure, I still believe in the human spirit. And I still believe in, in America, the ideal of America. I have zero faith in the government of this country at this point, And I have a waning faith of the average person. But I believe in the ideal of America. I believe in the message of our founders. And I believe if we will just tie into it, latch on to it, and make America the shining city on the hill that it's supposed to be, if not for everyone, just for ourselves, there's a lot of great opportunities still here. It is not the end of America. And people that tell you are are fear mongers who want to sell to you a fear. But it is a time of the transformation of America. And I really suggest you figure out how to endure and thrive during that transformation. This is just another example of that transformation. I call it the death of the suburbs, but to be more accurate, it would be the death of many suburbs. Many will survive. Many will fall. Everything will change. I hope you're prepared for the change. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.